You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Saul's barbecue when he's in Greece. But the moment that he sets foot back in Jewish territory, he minds his P's and Q's and doesn't want anyone to know that he partook of Saul's. And so this is what the author of Hebrews is getting at. We have no idea who wrote this letter. We don't. Uh, no one really said this is who wrote it, although there are a lot of theories as to who wrote it. Traditionally, people have attributed it to Paul, but actually, as you read Hebrews, it's clear that it's not Paul uh, who wrote it. Uh, it's been thought that Apollos wrote it. It's been thought that Aquila and Priscilla wrote it, because you'll see that the first person goes back and forth from singular to plural, and so maybe a married couple wrote it. Uh, we don't know, but the bottom line is we know who ultimately wrote it, and that's the Holy Spirit of God. That's who wrote it. That's the author of it. And the early church, led by God, included it in the canon of Scripture. But it's a letter that we don't often go, go through, and so I chose it because I think that it's entirely pertinent, as all of Scripture is, to our lives today. And I find that I learn the Bible uh, by teaching it. Uh, if you've ever taught a subject... Uh, it, you find that you, you're learning as you go along too. And the best way to learn something uh, is to actually teach it and engage with it. So that's why we are in Hebrews and we're in it uh, together. And so right out of the gate, uh, there's no traditional uh, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. The author of Hebrews is saying that God has spoken to his people. That's what he does. He speaks to them. And how has he spoken to them? Well, long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That is the mouthpiece of God where the prophets, where the prophets would receive a word from the Lord and they would say it. Thus saith the Lord. And they were right to often be reluctant to give that word. And when Jeremiah is in Babylon and God gives him the word to speak, Jeremiah himself, by staying within Babylon with the people of Israel and not being tempted to go across the river to the other side and to camp outside of the city, he falls under the judgment of his own preaching. This is not something that, uh, that the prophets really loved and enjoyed. And in fact, the corollary of that, remember Jonah, God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach to them. And, then, and Jonah's response is, I'm out of here. Takes a trip on a boat. It goes Gilligan's Island, but worse, right? The three-hour tour turns into spending three days in the belly of a whale. And then he actually goes to Nineveh, and he begins to preach. And what happens in Nineveh? People actually turn to the Lord. And what is Jonah's response? He's actually mad at God. I knew this would happen. Uh, and so you find the prophets 
on one side or the other, really reluctant to preach the word that God has given to them uh, because they understand what the outcome is and who it is uh, that is speaking. But also throughout the Old Testament, we see God manifesting himself in a number of ways. Right? He manifests himself to the people of Israel by a, a fiery pillar by uh, a cloud uh, by day and a pillar of fire by night. Right? In the wilderness, he manifests himself to Moses in the burning bush. Uh, he shows up in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He wrestles with Jacob at Jabbok. He shows up in a myriad of ways. He even speaks through Balaam's donkey. So God's word cannot be thwarted. He's constantly speaking to his people. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. These last days are what we're living in. The last days is, even though all of us have read the Left Behind series and all that kind of stuff, and we've watched the terrible movie with Kirk Cameron in it, uh, the last days, which we are in, are the days from the resurrection of Jesus Christ up until he comes again. And so it's really, we shouldn't be doing any math and wondering uh, when it is that, that Jesus is coming back. In fact, at any given moment in the history of the world since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if we spend too much time looking around us, it's always going to see, seem like it's the end of time. And today's world is no exception to that. Uh, it's funny, I was reading a, a history book on this, and uh, a secular historian was talking about how people who lived in the year 999 were convinced that in the year 1000 Jesus would return after a millennium. That's not really unreasonable thinking, is it? And this historian said, but the great irony is not only that Jesus, that Jesus did not return in the year 1000, but of all the years of history, nothing happened in the year 1000. There actually is nothing substantial that happened in that year, much less the return of Jesus. But in these last days, how has God spoken to us? He's spoken to us by his Son, which is God's definitive word. God has said all that he has to say in Jesus Christ. God has done everything that he wants to do through Christ. And so the God that we serve, the God that we worship is a God that speaks. And if he had not spoken, there would be no church. There would be no pulpit. And we forget that the sermon is distinct to Christianity. The, the gospel, the, the evangelization of the world is particular to Christianity. We speak because God has spoken to us. If he had not spoken, we could not speak the gospel to one another. And so the author of Hebrews puts these contrasts in these first verses. The contrast between the days of old and the last days. The contrast between the men of old and then us. The contrast between the prophets and Jesus. But in any case, in all cases, God is communicating to his people. And so the author of Hebrews is not saying that back then, 
God's communication to us was limited or that God communicated to us in a way that was less than. But in fact, what he's doing is he's talking about the importance and the harmony of the Old and New Testaments. The author of Hebrews holds both in high esteem as God's word to men and women. Not so amongst some in our day and age. Early on in the church, there was a heresy that broke out that said that the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. And if most of us are honest, we probably wouldn't say that. But we're going to gravitate more toward the New Testament than we are the Old, aren't we? The Old is more complicated to us. The Old doesn't make sense maybe to us. And in practice, we end up saying, well, the God of the Old Testament is simply different than the God of the New Testament. Now, no doubt, there is a difference, a great difference, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in Jesus Christ. But here in Hebrews, and we're going to see this throughout the letter, that the author of Hebrews leaves no doubt that he believes that the Old Testament is the Word of God. He believes it to be all the Word of God. Of God. But what he also says is that the, what the prophets have to say is not the end of the matter. That the Old Testament is pointing toward the New Testament. But here in Hebrews, and indeed throughout the entirety of the New Testament, the New Testament is pointing back to the Old. You can't understand one without the other. But he's also saying that God's word is definitive and final in Jesus Christ as we've received it in our Bible. Certainly in the mid-20th century, there was a huge movement to try to create a new gospel. What could a book that was written nearly 2,000 years ago say to people today? And so a new gospel was created, which really wasn't new at all. It was just a simple rehashing of old heresies. I remember once when I was in seminary, we were taking a class on doctrine with Alistair McGrath. It was a small tutorial, and one student, a first year along with me, uh, raised his hand and he said, Professor McGrath, I think I've got a new way of explaining the Trinity. McGrath held his hand up and he said, before you say anything else, just understand that what you are about to say was probably said by somebody in Asia Minor in the fourth century who was burned. <laughs> sure enough, I mean, it's really interesting to me that a lot of the heresies that we deal with today are nothing new. We can't say, well, I didn't see that one coming. But probably the most insidious heresy that we have to deal with today within the life of the church is this idea of progressive revelation. That is that God is not definitively spoken through his son Jesus in his word, but that God continues to reveal new truths even if that contradicts what he had to say in his word. It's a dastardly and terrible heresy. This is why Fitz Allison wrote the book, The Cruelty of Heresy. Why? Because heresy is cruel. It's unpastoral. The most pastoral thing that I do as your pastor is not visit you in the hospital. It's actually when I preach. It's the only time where I actually get to pastor you as a flock. 
Right? Everybody's here kind of at once, and so I actually can pastor you. You know, a shepherd with one sheep isn't much of a shepherd. A shepherd shepherds a flock. And when I'm preaching, I'm not only pastoring the flock, but I'm being pastoral toward you. And what if I got up and I said, you know, the Bible is fine to kind of give us helpful hints for living, and we ought to pay attention of it, uh, but our human experience uh, shows us uh, that maybe God got this wrong or that God changed his mind along the way. Now that might sit well with you and I on issues that we want God to change his mind about. I mean, I've had people come in and, and sit and tell me, God has told me, fill in the blank. And it's something that is completely contrary to what God's word has to say. And my response is almost always, could you ask God to tell me that too? Uh, but also, I can assure you that that's not what God has said to you. Now, I don't know if you uh, just have been going overboard on Chen Express late at night uh, or, or what's happening, uh, but it doesn't square with God's word. And as we ought to say very often, that uh, the Holy Spirit gets blamed for a lot of things the Holy Ghost would never do. And so this idea of progressive revelation, that God changes his mind, is not just unpastoral, it's cruel because it leads people to disbelief. I mean, think about that. Even if I got up and said, here's this one passage of Scripture, and God was wrong about it, and that sits really well with us, where does that end? If we can't trust God on that issue, what about who Jesus Christ is? What about our salvation in Him? I read in the Bible the other day that, that we have assurance uh, that we have fellowship with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. But what if that's not true? And this is why Mark Twain said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand that bother me. It's God's word uh, to us, but it's also God's word for us. And so the idea that God has changed his mind uh, from his word is a complete and total nonsense on one hand, uh, but it also uh, leaves us in a place where we become the ultimate determiners and arbiters of what God says. We become the mouthpieces of God. It's like one of the neighbors said that in the beginning God created man in his own image and since then man's been trying to return the favor. We end up having a God of our own making. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, no, God has spoken through his word, full stop. This is the means by which God communicates to us. And no matter how different our world may be, God's word is still enough because Christ is still enough. And we're not getting better as a civilization. I mean, I guess in some ways you could say that our horizons are broadening, but I just think we've gotten more creative about how we can sin. Uh, but quite frankly, we're no better than previous generations. I shouldn't say this, but this is why I get so worried about people talking about being on the right or the wrong side of history. Uh, because what if a hundred years from now, 
our whatever grandchildren or the world that has moved on judged us by their current standards. We're all doomed. We're all going to come out looking bad. And so actually for the Christian, there's a great deal of freedom and relief because our call is to be faithful to God's word. And we understand that at the end of the day, nobody gets away with anything. God sorts that out. He's on the right side of history, and so he determines that. And even in our day and age, Jesus is still enough. We don't need Jesus and something else. In fact, our articles of religion say this, that in the Holy Scriptures, we find all things necessary for salvation. If you want to find out how you get right with God, you go to the Scriptures. There's nothing we need that hasn't been disclosed in Christ. This is why later on in Hebrews 2.1, the author tells us, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. This is the tendency that we have, is to, to drift away from it. I mean, if, you've, uh, if you're not, unless you're like Ratty and Toad and Mole, who like to play around in boats, my, you can tell how old my children are, the wind and the willows reference. Uh, if you've ever been in a boat, or better yet, you don't even have to be in a boat. If you've ever been to the ocean, not necessarily the Gulf, because that's not the ocean. If you've ever been in the Atlantic and you've been out there swimming, if you're out there for long enough and you look back, you realize what? You've actually drifted down from the shore, haven't you? You think that you've stayed the same, but unless you actually have your eyes fixed, or if you're in the boat and you're tethered to something, whether that's a, 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 a pier or, or an anchor or whatever it might be, uh, unless you're tethered to something, you are going to drift. That's a given. And in the same way, unless we play, pay close attention to what we have heard in God's Word, we're guaranteed to drift. And sometimes we drift so much that we can't even recognize the fixed point that we're supposed to have our eyes fixed upon. And so there's a tremendous emphasis in Hebrews with keeping our eyes fixed upon Jesus Christ and his word. That, that is the litmus. That is the standard. That is the fount of wisdom. That is our definitive source. Now this does not mean that in everything we else we are beholden to the past. Though we remain steadfast to the message of the gospel, it does not mean that we remain antiquarian in all other respects. A Christian is not wedded to the past except for one thing, and that's Jesus Christ. And so that is one of the reasons why we can actually have the dean's class here in the nave. Right? This is a little bit controversial at the Advent to have this here. And dare I say, what would it mean for us to have coffee in the nave? But you see, the author of Hebrews would say, after all, this is the book of the Bible that tells us that it's the husband's responsibility to make coffee in the morning, Hebrews, Run. I hadn't thought about that till just now. Uh, no, I knew the joke, but I didn't the, the coffee parallel. But let's talk about that for a minute, about being beholden to the past. We're beholden to the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word. But having having the dean's class in the nave, having coffee 
uh, in the nave. One, there's a great irony, because we've been eating and drinking in this space since the 1890s. And on just about every single Sunday, we spill wine up there. So we've already been doing it, right? That's one thing. The, the other thing is, why wouldn't we have coffee in the nave? Pretty good reason, right? We want to take care of our building, right? That, that, that's a really good reason not to have coffee in the nave. Uh, but I would think that what the author of Hebrews has to say, and what I would echo, is that people are more important than a building. And the hospitality and making people feel welcome, and even if that means bringing a Coke or a cup of coffee into this space, uh, is not just fine, but ought to be encouraged. And what if somebody spills something? We clean it up. Right? We, we wipe it up. And so we need to listen to what the author of Colossians says in 3.2, who encourages us, uh, Paul says, uh, you have your mind fixed on earthly things, but not heavenly things. Right? The gospel is focused at people, and that's what's most important. And if we allow our own man-made traditions to get into the way of the gospel, then we've completely lost the plot. We've actually taken our eyes off of Jesus and begun to fix them on things that are secondary or tertiary or things that can just easily be fixed. And so why is Jesus and his word so important? The author tells us, through him also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He's the creator of the world, the universe. How many of y'all saw the Perseoid meteor shower that happened last week? Really? Oh, man, what a bunch of... All right, Rosemary, another astronomy nerd. High five. All right. Uh, it was really great, and it was lovely and, uh, and remarkable, and it's the closest it's been to Earth in a long time. Uh, and you missed it. You missed it. Uh, but as I was uh, standing out in the middle of the night uh, on the back patio watching uh, the meteor shower, just watching it gave me a humbling perspective of how great the universe was and how small I am. A speck of dust in this infinite universe. Have you ever been someplace, normally it's someplace that you're overwhelmed by nature, the Grand Canyon or, or some sort of view, or, or you actually can, you know, you're out in Montana where there are no lights and you can see the Milky Way or the Northern Lights or wherever you are, and all of a sudden you are just in awe of it that you just feel small. You're overwhelmed by it. Well, the universe makes us feel small, but not so with Jesus. He created it all. He's its author. Where was Jesus when the world was created? He was there in the beginning, and the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things have their being and are created through Jesus. 
I mean, this is how any of us would describe a precious object. You know, for instance, if you were to go to the Smithsonian, and Dick Lucas gave me this illustration. If you go to the Smithsonian and a curator is showing you a beautiful manuscript, inevitably they would say that this manuscript was made by so-and-so for so-and-so and we've been able to keep it this pristine condition through a manipulated environment, humidity, temperature, lighting. And this is how the author of Hebrews speaks of the world and Jesus. Except he says the world was made by him, it was made for him, and it is sustained by him. He's everything. This is his world. And that, uh, you know, when I was ordained, you know, everyone assumed that when I was ordained, all I really cared about were religious things and ideas. Right? No use engaging Andrew over a conversation about SCC football uh, or golf uh, or any other issue uh, of the day uh, because religion is kind of his thing. Right? That's his field of expertise. Uh, and that's, that's true, too. Uh, if you become a Christian, a lot of people will say things like, well, all they're concerned about anymore is Christianity. All they want to do is read their Bibles. That Christianity is primarily an interest in religion. But the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is not primarily a religious figure. In fact, he's not overtly concerned with religion. Because he is who the Bible says he is, the creator of the world, Everything that has to do with the world has to do with Jesus. The church is not the sphere of Christ. The world is. There's not one inch of this world that doesn't belong to Jesus and that doesn't belong to him and that he doesn't have dominion over. That's how great and powerful and awesome is he. All that we need to know about God is through Christ. All we need to redeem our all that we need to know to redeem us and to bring us to God is through Christ. All we need to control us in time and eternity is through the reign of Christ. Uh, the author as we quickly wrap up, I'm having to skip some things because of time. Well, the author does the following three things. And he does this throughout the entirety of the Bible. And that Christ is absolutely central to the purposes of God. That's the point of the book of Hebrews. The first thing he does is he brings together God and Christ. Do y'all remember, well maybe you don't because I wasn't even alive when this happened. Gagarin, he was the first human being to go up into outer space. Very brave. I don't know what it is with me in astronomy. Uh, he was the first, he was a Russian cosmonaut, went up in one of the Sputniks into outer space, and a very brave man, but you remember what he said when he came back down. I went up into outer space, and it turns out that God isn't there after all. Now, of course, his Soviet bosses were delighted in this, and Atheists from all over the world found this to be uh, something that they could grab hold of. Uh, but actually, uh, 
Gagarin going into space uh, in his comments doesn't tell us anything uh, because God hasn't told us to go up into outer space in a Sputnik to find him. What is God's answer to the question of where to find him? God has said, go to Jesus Christ. That's how you find God, in Jesus. So that's the first thing the author's trying to do. He brings together God and Christ. Two, he ties together the Old and New Testament. And this is just recapping all that we've been talking about. The scriptures are all about Christ. So if you go back to the synagogue, as a Jewish believer in Jesus that is reading this letter to you, if you go back to the synagogue, you have a book without any meaning. Your fathers, Abraham and Moses, all served Christ. So if you go back to Judaism, you can't understand them apart from Jesus Christ. The Bible and even the saints of the Old Testament belong to Jesus. And then three, he ties together redemption and revelation. They always go together. When he says, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of his majesty on high. You will hear God speaking when he has purified your sins. When you have redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ, then you're able to hear God speak. The scales fall off your eyes. Your heart is opened. Your ears are unstopped. Your mind is no longer veiled. You can actually hear God speaking to you in a way that you haven't before. And so, as we go through Hebrews, the things that I want you to, to hold together are that he brings together God and Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of his word, and because he ties together the Old and New Testaments, and finally he ties together redemption and revelation. And this is why the author of Hebrews is going to go to great lengths to talk about what it means uh, to be uh, saved uh, by the blood of Jesus Christ and using Old Testament language to uh, describe that. And so I'm really looking forward to Hebrews. It's pretty great. It's challenging, uh, and it will be fun uh, to unpack it. Uh, we're going to talk about angels uh, next week, uh, but uh, suffice it to say, I hope that as you go along your week that you can look at these four verses and talk about uh, Jesus and who he is. And the one thing that I neglected in the last minute to say anything about, but I'll go over because I think it's important, is that here... In verses 3 through 4, 3 and 4, uh, we find that Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king, which is a big theme in Hebrews as well, which uh, no other Old Testament character, no one in history could be. You couldn't be a prophet and a priest. You couldn't be a priest and a king. Uh, all those interchangeabilities were just non-existent, and yet we see them all sewn up uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ and embodied uh, in him. And so let us pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this letter to us, uh, not just to struggling uh, Jewish believers in you, uh, but to struggling Christians even today. Lord, that we, play, we, we, that we would pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it, that our eyes would be fixed upon you, Jesus, and your glorious gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. 
Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.